Arashi, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. It's November 19th, 2020, and today we're talking with Hugh Tad Blair, who is Professor of Behavioral Neuroscience in the Psychology Department and a member of the Brain Research Institute at UCLA. Hi, Tad. Hello. Tad is a neurophysiologist modeler whose work centers on information coding at the level of networks and neurons and how learning alters neural representations to form memories and modify behavior. His lab combines computation, neural recordings, and large-scale population imaging uh, in awake-behaving rats during associative and spatial learning tasks. So today in the Zoom, we've got, uh, we're joined by former collaborator and fellow navigation specialist, Francesco Savelli. Hi, Francesco. Hi. And of course, our regulars, Charlie Wilson. Hi, Charlie. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hi, Todd. Hello. So, Tad, um, there's a recurring theme in your bibliography that connects the search for neural representations with plasticity in the face of behavior uh, going way back. I guess I, I went back as far as 93. <laughs> um, so, and, and that, all of this is sort of whether it's identifying keynotes and computations in uh, a head direction circuit or resolving how hippocampal place cells provide a recalibration signal for path integration or how these same cells remap their place fields during field conditioning. So you've done this really fearlessly at many spatial scales from synaptic, even like gap junctions to networks. Uh, and, and more importantly, also across time scales from sub-second to behavioral time scales that span like acquisition and extinction of memory. So I'm kind of hoping you, you can say something about how you work with the tension that's famously inherent in this process where we first have to define like the anchoring first principles that, that set up circuits and representations in the brain, but then only to a point where we can then we have to, to leave all that behind and impart all the layers of flexibility that, that behavior requires. So take it away. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sure that I have a grand strategy or plan or scheme for that. I think like a lot of scientists, I tend to just follow my curiosity where it leads me and then just try to be as, 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 uh, as accurate and truthful as possible when I get there about what's going on. Um, but, but yeah, the question of, of how, uh, uh, of how brain states encode information and give rise to our sensations and emotions and thoughts and consciousness. You know, this is really, you know, I think like probably a lot of neuroscientists, it's the question that, you know, made me want to be a neuroscientist to begin with because it, in many ways is the question is, you know, what is our, what is our conscious experience made of, you know? And so um, that's a, big, intractable, really more philosophical than scientific question in some ways. But as a scientist, what you try to do is, you know, look for models that, that make these big intractable questions tractable enough to, um, you know, get a few answers and, and make a little progress towards that deeper understanding that you're, that you're looking for. And so, uh, yeah, for me, these, these systems that you study, that you, that you talked about, that I've been studying the head direction circuit, the place cells in the hippocampus and so on, I, I, I think I gravitate, have gravitated towards those systems and towards the questions that I've gravitated towards because, you know, they offer what seems like the most promising balance between questions that are hard enough to be interesting 
and uh, simple enough to be tractable. So that's kind of maybe one of the most, the main guiding principles in my work is to try to, you know, make progress by striking that balance properly. It's, it's super interesting too, how you sort of resolve everything to the convergence of signals, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, reduce is, I mean, are we to think of like fear, for example, is really just one input that comes in from, I mean, oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, or then, you know, in, in terms of, of, of spatial stuff and navigation, it's, it's really more specific, measurable, time-locked, anchored things like body position and, you know, vestibular inputs and things like that. So, but fear, I mean, taking a, a complex behavior, and, and I noticed in your work, you, it's not simply the fear conditioning, it's also aversive experience and you know the, the way you're pulling this out in time scales in terms of learning versus extinction and appetitive versus aversive and how those processes may differ based on um, what's impinging on the cells that you're looking at is is really interesting and um, and it's yeah and those and the words that you know we use like a fear and aversive and you know when we when we do experiments and when we uh talk about hypotheses that we're testing, you know, we use those words. And I, and I think that it's, it, it's always necessary to have a healthy skepticism and constant questioning about whether or not you really have a, a formal definition of those words in mind and around which you're designing your experiment. Because, you know, the word fear, for example, is just very, uh, open-ended and, you know, can be, can mean many different things in different contexts, you know, and so, you know, the experiment that I talked about in my talk today is really an avoidance experiment where, you know, animals can uh, avoid a location where if they go there, they will be shocked, but a lot of fear conditioning experiments involve being in a confined space where the aversive stimulation is not really escapable. And those are very different, you know, so whether or not the word, what we mean when we say fear and fear conditioning really even applies to the other situation is hard to uh, be certain of. So you almost have to sort of try to uh, uh, design your experiments, you know, focus on the empirical variables that you're measuring, and then, you know, be very careful about bringing in those kinds of interpretive words into the discussion as you look at your results, you know, so, but I, but, but, but fear is an example of a, of a, of, of, of a motivation and you know, motivation in many ways is sort of the, the energy that drives behavior. And so if you're gonna study behavior, you can't get away from the, from, 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 oh, sorry. <laughs> Your turn next, Francesca. With the Life on Zoom is full of interruptions like this. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I mean, I mean, I, I think you know, whenever I use words like fear or uh, or uh, reward or any of these sort of motivationally defined terms, you know, I I, I think that what we're often you know, we have to sort of keep in mind that the big picture when we talk about those things is. We're talking about the, um, the, the values that are being used to drive decision-making and 
and and that and the way that works may may may, may differ a lot in one experiment to the next. So we have to be careful about, I guess, the operational so definition of those terms may be may be quite different even in two similar seeming experiments. So one thing that struck me in the way you were describing things was that uh, you talked about uh, a representation in brain states. Yeah. Uh, that's related to those, because it's related to, you know, general kinds of things like fear or, or a why or a behavioral state motivation kind of thing. And some of the things that, you know, particularly in hippocampal things or uh, uh, head direction system, you have a, 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 rep a representation uh, uh, uh to get a handle on, right? It's not just to study, uh, you know, aversion. You're not studying the dopamine reward signal. Uh, you're studying about changes about of representations along with these other kinds of states and how they uh, and how they go. They you know af affect each other, and it's you know particularly interesting in the to the hippocampal or medial temporal lobe where they kind of a lot of the idea is that the representations are kind of self constructed. Uh, as opposed to some, you know, sensory coding thing where you're just really focusing on on representation. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Do you do you does that af affect how you, or maybe what's uh, particularly interesting to you about the, you know, the interface between some state and representation? Well, yeah. So you know, I, I kind of have a mantra that I repeat nowadays, like almost at the beginning of every paper I write and at, every, at the beginning of every lecture I give in class, which is that, you know, when it comes to neural coding, I, I like to think about uh, what a neural code is, is it's a system for mapping states of the world onto states of the brain. So you mentioned, you know, brain states, you know, are really the, the stuff that our perceptions are made of. Brain states are the stuff that are our motivations are made of, brain states are the stuff that our memories are made of. And so uh, the question is like, really what are the dimensions of those brain states that carry information about all those things, you know? And we work now, I think within a very, um, um, I think we, we there's a paradigm that has come to dominate our thinking about brain states in neuroscience, which I think can, can appropriately be called the population vector coding paradigm, which is that the brain states that matter, the dimensions of, 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 of the state space that encode information in the brain are activity levels of individual nerve cells, you know, and you take a vector of those activity levels and you have a state that encodes information. And, you know, the, the stuff that I talked about today very much, you know, lies within that paradigm. And I think that even, you know, in sensory coding, like you mentioned, as well as in hippocampal coding, even though the kinds of things that we're looking at, the kinds of world states, let's say, that we are uh, seeking to find in the brain states may differ when we are studying a sensory system versus a memory system, the, the paradigm of using neural population vectors as our code words for the brain states, the paradigm of using neural activity levels as the dimensions of the coding space kind of permeates across all of those levels. And something that I've kind of gotten very interested in recently um, is 
trying to sort of break out of that paradigm a little bit, like thinking about brain states or coding spaces in which the dimensions are something other than neural activity levels, if that makes sense. Um, and so uh, this is, there's a paper that we wrote recently that, um, that kind of addresses this. And, and, and essentially the idea, I don't know um, how easy it is to get into this or it is, if, it's even a, if it's even a response to your question, but, um, but the basic idea is that in very, that, that you know, in, in, in signal processing theory, we, we, we can represent signals in different representational spaces. And a very classical example of that is like the time versus the frequency domain for representing the same signal. You know, we can, we can, we can map a signal that's represented the time domain into a completely different representational space by representing it in the frequency domain. All the information is the same, it's just a different representation. And I've come to sort of feel that this population vector coding that we all sort of take for granted and swim in every day, this population vector coding idea is actually just one of two major domains, much like that are analogous to the time and frequency domain in which the brain represents information. And um, I'm actually quite interested in looking at that question, not just in hippocampal memory systems, but also in sensory systems and in motor systems to see, you know, if this paradigm that we have sort of adopted of thinking about neural coding, you know, the population vector code paradigm, let's call it, which permeates so much of neuroscience, if, 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 we, if, if, if that can be broken out of, and if it can be, can it be broken out of not just in, in you know, my own personal interesting area of say, example memory states, but also in these other, in, in sensory coding and motor coding, et cetera. And I could, uh, you know, go on at a, at, at a bit more length about, about that concept, if, but, but I, I should probably um, pause there for, for comments and feedback. I think you should say more. Okay. <laughs> so let me see if I can explain this without, without, the, without any visual aids, okay? So, uh, you know, the idea that a, a population vector is essentially the way you know the main way can be can be can be conceptualized as a vector of firing rates. Okay, you have a, a neural population, hence the name population vector. It has n neurons in it, and if you give me a list, if you tell me you know a list of n firing rates, if you tell me every neuron's firing rate, then then I will give you back you know I will decode that vector and tell you something you know I'll decode that brain state and tell you something about the world or what the brain is thinking. So the dimensions of the coding space are these are firing rates. There, there, there are neural activity levels, which is synonymous in, in many cases with firing rate. So what is a firing rate? A firing rate is a time interval. Well, it's the inverse of the average time interval between pairs of spikes fired by a neuron, right? So by definition, a neuron's firing rate is inversely proportional to the average interval between spikes fired by that neuron, right? So pairs of spikes that are fired by a single neuron, the, the average interval between those, such pairs of spikes is a firing rate and is therefore also the dimension of the coding space that we assume to be the main uh, dimensions of the neural coding space when we think about population vector. 
what if instead of measuring the, different, the, the time interval between pairs of spikes that are fired by the same neuron, what if we instead measure the time interval between pairs of spikes that are fired by two different neurons, okay? So now instead of measuring the interval between spike one and spike two, both fired by neuron A, I measure the interval between spike one and spike two where one spike is fired by A and the other by B. That is a, I can take an average of that interval as well I can define that as a coding dimension. And when I do that, it bears a relationship to what we, to the, to the standard firing rate that is extremely similar, that is mathematically similar to the relationship between uh, a time domain variable and a frequency domain variable. In other words, there is a conjugate relationship between intervals between pairs of spikes fired by the same neuron and intervals of between spikes fired by different neurons. And when you encode something like position in firing rates, like place cells do, or like head direction cells do, you actually automatically without realizing it are encoding the conjugate of that variable. So the time derivative of position is velocity, it's conjugate velocity. You are without realizing it, or maybe you do realize it, but uh, without thinking about it, you're encoding the derivative of that thing in intervals between pairs of spikes fired by different neurons. So there is a whole sort of parallel coding space, conjugate coding space that exists uh, alongside population vectors that is encoding the second dimension of a phase space, the, 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 the time derivative, the conjugate of any other variable that we encode. And in all areas of neuroscience, sensory neuroscience, uh, hippocampal coding locations, uh, studies of prediction error and value signals and decision-making, conjugate variables come up all the time, okay? A prediction error is the time derivative of a value signal. A velocity is a time derivative of a position signal. Um, so, we, we look at neurons and we see that there are neurons whose firing rates are tuned for velocity and neurons whose uh, firing rates are tuned for position. And we tend to think of those as sort of two different populations of neurons that encode two different things. But in fact, neurons that encode position also encode velocity in this shadow or this conjugate coding domain. Neurons that encode velocity can also encode position. That's a little bit trickier, but that's one of the things that we show in the paper velocity tuned neurons actually encode position in their interest in their uh, uh, between cell spike intervals can do that. And so um, this whole idea that the brain states that matter, the brain states that encode information are, are population vectors. It's a little bit like saying that only the time domain matters and not the frequency domain. It's a little bit like saying, you know, we're just going to get by in life, never thinking about the frequency domain. You could do that, but it wouldn't be a good idea. And I don't think the brain does that either. And maybe as a sort of a empirical argument for, for, the, for the possibility that that's true, you know, artificial neural network models are also very much built on this population vector coding idea. We take uh, weighted vector sums of firing rates to calculate the activation of each node in, say, an artificial neural network. So in, in many ways, artificial neural networks are built to decode population vectors. 
And you don't need a big neuron with a bunch of dendrites to do that. All you really need is a golf ball that, you know, integrates the sums of its inputs. Um, why would neurons look the way they do if all they're doing is, is, is what a simple weighted linear summation neuron an artificial neural network does? And I like to, so, so, so part of this argument is that um, what real neurons are doing is not measuring firing rates and computing weighted sums to generate activity, to, to, to calculate their activity levels. They are doing that, but in addition to that, they are measuring the intervals between pairs of spikes that are fired by different neurons that come in. And in so doing, they are designed to analyze both you know, the time and frequency domain aspect of their incoming neural activity. I, so I don't know how much of that <laughs> you know, makes sense without, the visual, without visual aids or anything, but, um, but that's an idea that we're very interested in right now. And it's an idea that cannot that that it's only now becoming possible to test because I think as the next generation of of of, of uh, calcium indicators for detecting voltage come down the pike, where we're, where we'll be able to do voltage measurements on a very large population scale, similar to the way we are now doing calcium measurements, like I did in my talk today. When we are able to do that, when we're able to measure very very large uh, numbers of spike trains at high temporal resolutions from large numbers of neurons, then it will become possible to sort of test and th this, this idea and, and, and analyze what information is contained, not only in the firing rates, not only within the, in the between the within cell spike intervals, i.e. firing rates of neurons, but in what information is contained within the between cell spike intervals, which we, some, which we uh, kind of started to call co-firing rates. Um, of, of neurons, and I'm kind of excited that those kinds of questions, you know, may some may become empirically askable in the near future. So, so that sound this sounds uh, quite cool. It's interesting because I'm I teach a dominant paradigm stuff in a computational neuroscience course, and I mostly teach it. But I yeah. try to tell students that that is the dominant paradigm. Uh, and there's other ways and how, what does a rate mean and so forth. But one of the things that I, and I don't know if you've gotten to this question. One of the things that I bring up is one of the reasons that that is so compelling, this idea of, of activity level codes and so forth, because it can be joined with uh, Habian learning and LTP to get associational learning and, and changes those representations in a way that's consistent with those representations mean and they kind of the learning and the representational aspect of things kind of go together in a way that that can make sense right so you have a pattern that's associated with another pattern and as they get connected they get more connected and so forth and that's one of the reasons that some coding scheme if you have some new coding scheme mm -hmm. then you have to address the question of learning and how you learn with that and change the computation with that new coding scheme and that's hard right so right well, that's a great question, and I do think that you know a, a learning rule that is essentially sort of uh, error derivative based, you know, can be formulated in this other coding domain. That's a, that's an interesting math project, and it's maybe beyond my capabilities, but I don't think it's incompatible. What I do think is a little bit of a cause for concern is that this this dominant paradigm of heavy and learning, in which is you know also the basis for a lot of AI and machine learning, to do that kind of stuff, 
you don't need neurons that look and act like real neurons do. You need neurons that look and act like artificial neurons do, you know, golf balls with, with, that compute weighted linear sum. And, you know, there are a lot of people in the field like uh, uh, Bartlett Mel comes to mind who have kind of been making this point for a long time that, you know, real neurons do, you know, are built to do a lot more than what artificial neurons do. And I think that that is a little bit, you know, points to the fact that there may be more to the story and it's not incompatible with the heavy and learning paradigm at all. It just means that, you know, th th that there may be a bit more to that story, again, that we may be kind of focusing on the time domain and ignoring the frequency domain aspect of things, if that makes sense. Um. So I wanted to ask you, um, because of your, you've done so much work about temporal coding, indeed, mm -hmm. now working with miniscopes, so, you know, at the moment, what the, you know, the great things is that they give you signal from so many cells that you can track, but what they give you is some kind of proxy of firing rate. So it seems like to me that after years of building this awareness <laughs> of the importance of temporal coding and everything now, because, you know, when you have a hammer, you go around looking for nails. So, um, <laughs> You know, now the miniscope might shift back the attention to the um, uh, to the idea of finding rate and exactly what you were talking about. But you know, actually, now you're thinking about the future could be the uh, voltage, and they could have the temporal resolution to study temporal coding. I'm sure Buzagi will be very happy to hear that. And uh, um, but yeah, so that's that was like one question I had methodological. But the other is like, I think, um, you know, what's very interesting or what you were saying is that perhaps it's one of those rare occasions in which we see um, at least speculative purpose to this temporal coding in hippocampus, because like, you know, you think about phase precession um, of place cells, right? Um, you know, a lot of us feel, okay, it's a phenomenon that is so mystifying and in, in, in some way, it's telling you something really important about the system. You just don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are theories and a lot of theories, but you know, you always wonder, is it epiphenomenal or is it purposeful? Or if that even means something, you know, asking that question, but it's telling you something. Now you're saying, you know, with this conjugate uh, in, interpretation of um, the the the, the, the time interval between pairs of spikes, whether they come from the single cell or multiple cells, <coughs> the ability of encoding derivative and uh, state at the same time, it could be applied to many system and it could give us um, a theoretical framework for, um, you know, interpreting why you have that. I mean, there have been other ideas, of mm -hmm. course, the plasticity going back to um, building sequences and, you know, but yeah, I thought it was interesting. Well, let me say something about phase perception, actually, because, you know, that's something that we addressed in the paper, this hippocampus paper that I recently published with Ryan, Ryan uh, uh, Gergrich, my graduate student. And so, you know, it has been shown and it's, um, you know, it's convincing. I, I think we all accept that, that there's information encoded, not only in the firing rates of cells, but also in their firing phases. In other words, and, 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 and phase coding really is 
you know, this conjugate coding channel. I mean, ultimately what a phase code is, is it's, you know, the tiny relationship between two different cells. So it is that, that coding channel. But, but, but so a question comes up, a question you could ask is, okay, I accept that spatial information is encoded in firing rates. And I also accept that spatial information is encoded in the phases of say place cells. Uh, and, and, and I accept that if I decode firing rates and phases, I'm gonna get more juice out of the limb and I'm gonna get more information about position than if I only encode one or the other because they both are conveying some information. But now let's ask the following question. Does the information in the phase coding channel come at the expense that, of information that could otherwise have been encoded in the firing rate channel? Now, I don't know if that makes sense, that question, but what I mean is these two different coding channels I'm talking about, are they independent with their own capacity? Or if I encode spatial information in phases, am I doing so at the expense of information that I could have encoded about position in, in, in firing rates? And in this paper, what we hypothesize, and that the, the title of the paper is an uncertainty principle for neural coding, and that's a little bit pretentious, but, but here's, the, here's the reason why it's titled that, because the hypothesis is this. The hypothesis is that if you decide, I wanna encode information about position in the between cell spike intervals, that is the phases, then you, you must give up capacity for encoding position information in the within cell spike intervals, firing rates. The two coding channels are conjugate and therefore not independent of one another in the sense that, uh, the, it, and this is where the uncertainty principle comes in, the more I know about position from looking at phases, the less I can know about position from looking at firing rates. However, and this is a postulate that's in the paper not proven. However, because Firing rates and phases, or let's say within cell intervals and between cell intervals, have this special conjugate relationship with one another. They also have a special ability to not interfere with each other when one is assigned to encode information about a variable like position and the other is assigned to encode information about a, that variable's conjugate, like velocity. So even though, yes, if I encode position in spike phases, I must give up some of the code, the, my ability to encode information about position in uh, firing rates. If I encode position information in spike phases, I do not give up information about, uh, I, I'm sorry, I do not give up my, any capacity to encode information about velocity in firing rates. Why? Because velocity and position, they're exactly the same relationship to one another conjugacy that firing rates and phases do. And for that reason, you can pack uh, an entire phase space, which has a position and a velocity dimension into these two coding channels more efficiently. Um, so, so there is a trade-off for encoding any single variable. If you try to encode position, let's say in firing rates, the more accurately encode position firing rates, the less accurately can encode it in phase. But it is not true that the more accurately encode position firing rates, the less accurately you can code velocity in phase. Velocity is, you know, has a special status and actually is, it's very natural to encode velocity in phases when you're encoding position and firing rates. And it's very natural to encode uh, velocity and firing rates when you're encoding 
position in phases. So, uh, so you're saying that they are basically representationally independent, but they do compete for information capacity. There is a true analog of the uncertainty principle at work here between these two coding channels, which is that the more information about one thing you try to pack into one channel, the less information you can pack about that same thing into the other channel. However, the more information you pack about one thing into one channel, the more easy it is to pack information about that one thing's derivative into the other channel. And so, you know, that's why I think like when, you, when, we, we, when we talk about, you know, speed cells versus grid cells in the entorhinal cortex, and this is one of the points we made in the paper, you know, we say, oh, speed cells encode speed and grid cells encode position. But what we really mean when we say that is that speed code, speed cells encode position, speed in their firing rates and grid cells encode position in their, speed cells encode speed in their firing rates and grid cells encode position in their firing rates. But grid cells actually encode velocity in their phases and speed cells actually encode position uh, in their phases. So, it's not really tr correct to say that speed cells encode speed and grid cells encode velocity. That's only true if you focus on one of the two coding channels. And if you focus on the other, you actually reverse what you see. You see speed cells encoding position, and you see grid cells encoding velocity because they're conjugates of one another, if that makes sense. <clears throat> and again, I, you know, you, I, I, I appreciate that you recognize the dilemma that I faced when I started doing calcium imaging because it was a dilemma. I, there was a part of me that didn't want to go there because, you know, I'm so interested in these questions about time coding and I knew I was going to have to throw all that away. But at the same time, it is a step on the road towards, I think, you know, as these, as these imaging techniques start to tackle voltage, which they're already starting to do, you know, I think on the other side of it, there will be a new ability to answer some of these other questions as well. And the questions about population vector coding are still all very interesting. You know, it's not like they're worthless. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and I mean, for, for phase precession, going back to the first question you had, um, you know, the fact that there is more information about space and phase, um, looking at the phase, um, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know how well we understand that in two-dimensional environment. I, you know, I know you've done some work and other people have done work, but, um, you know, this idea that you can um, encode position even better with, if you look at the firing rate and phase, um, I don't know how well it's going to play out when you really look at it at 2D. There are studies, but I don't know that we really got to the bottom of that. That's actually... Well, I, you're, you know, you're right. It gets very hard to do. And I think that one of the limitations on being able to do that up to now has precisely been the fact that in order to see the information in phase that encodes, say, two-dimensional velocity, let's say, you know, because I do believe that population of grid cells encodes two-dimensional velocity in their spike phases, you know, relative to one another. I do believe that. But in order to show that would require uh, spike train samples, you know, 
couple of orders of magnitude bigger than what you can do with tetrodes or even, you know, silicon probes. You're going to have to get to where you can do, you know, the imaging, the voltage imaging of several thousand grid cells simultaneously before you can actually prove that. You just don't have the end to, 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 to look at it. And, and I think that's more than anything been the reason why that's been so difficult. I think if we had a, a big data set that that would become a lot more tractable. But speaking of what you can study with this miniscope and the, the topic of your talk today, I was really curious about something um, more at the conceptual level. So, um, you know, you study um, uh, aversive uh, expedients encoded by place cells and um, uh, place cells, you know, people have, people have studied the encoding or reward, so positive experience in place cells. And uh, it really goes back, I, I guess there are two ways of studying those things with place cells in terms of conceptual framework. One is to what extent those things drive the learning that underlies the representation or to what extent those things are additional information that gets encoded in the cognitive map. Just You're talking of, about the learning, the learning, uh, the, the learning, the behavioral learning that occurs during aversive conditioning or avoidance learning. Yeah. I mean, it really goes back to the original idea of cognitive map, say by Tolman, right? The idea yeah. of counter argument to the idea that all learning is stimulus association based on reward. Mm -hmm. And this idea, you know, he, he called that, you know, he was really against the uh, Skinner's behavior school. Just call it uh, you know, in, 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 his, in his paper um, uh, about cognitive maps, he called it the telephone switchboard school interpretation of the nervous system. And this idea that you have to have a cognitive representation that um, it, not everything is learned by reward. And then that transfers to um, you know, place cells and the cognitive map as intended by uh, O'Keefe and Nadell and this idea that you have the spatial framework that is learned no matter what, that is incidental learning, <clears throat> latent learning, and it creates this map on which then you can encode, you can use this spatial framework to interrelate the items and events of the experience. And so the idea that um, an aversive experience is something that you encode on top of this cognitive map but a lot of more recent work seems to try to explain, um, attempts to explain place cells in terms of reward-based learning and predictive learning. There have been like only Flario studies now. And I don't know, maybe it's maybe they're right and you know the, the origin of the idea was wrong, or maybe they ignored the origin of the idea or well, I think there's a, there is, there's not necessarily a, a disconnect there. So uh, the way that I feel like uh, I currently think about it, and I think it's not, you know, necessarily coming from me, but it's more because I'm following the way the field is going with it, is that is to sort of really frame it in the paradigm of, of value-based decision-making and model-based decision-making. Uh, 
uh, as opposed to model free decision making, you know, there's this sort of uh, distinction between habit and goal directed behavior and the campus seems to be much more involved in the goal directed behavior or model based decision making and, you know, the, 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 the basic tenets of that paradigm are that we, that we, when confronted with uh, a choice to behave in one way or another, what we do is we, when we're, when we're using a model-based decision process, process or a goal-based decision, pro, goal-directed decision process, what we do is we, we try to predict uh, what world line each of those two behavior choices will take us down and then try to estimate the goodness of those two of the outcomes that will result. So there's two steps to that. One, what will be the outcome of choice A versus choice B? And, and two, what is the goodness of the outcome that will result from A versus from B? And our ability to predict what outcome will result from our choice is only as good as our model of the world. And so we have to have a good model of the world in place to, to do that. And that's in some sense what, you know, a cognitive map is good for that, right? Because, you know, it's good to know that if I take three rights, it's the same thing as a, as a left, you know? Uh, that's, that's built, that should be built into my world model so I can make good predictions about what outcome will follow from choice A from choice B. And there doesn't have to be any you know, reward going on for me to be building a better model of the world all the time, you know, learning what happened, you know, what, how, how causal relationships exist in the world. So you know, this kind of latent learning of, of, of the structure of the world you know, is perfectly compatible with the idea that someday I'm gonna need this model to make a prediction that's gonna drive my choice, you know? So there's not an, I don't think there's an incompatibility there. The idea that latent learning occurs, you know, uh, in advance of when what's being learned is needed. Um, so does that, does that sort of make sense? And I, I, but I do think that like when an aversive stimulus comes along, it does sort of change, it changes the demands upon that representation that you're using. And it, and it may be necessary to sort of restructure your model of the world to um, emphasize or de-emphasize certain predictions, certain choices, you know, to, 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 to um, uh, in other words, step one, which is my ability to predict the outcome and step two, my, uh, my, my attachment of value to one outcome versus another are not totally independent of one another. When I, when I experience a trauma, an aversive stimulus, um, I may want to restructure my uh, underlying model of the world to sort of support loss avoidance and minimize risk to my life and limb because, you know, making a mistake about getting hurt or injured is, you know, so costly that may be necessary to build your very, your world model around the, the need to be safe, I guess, is one way of thinking about it. <clears throat> so I don't know if that makes sense to, to your in response to your question, but I think. No, it does, it does. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was putting the two things as opposite just to, so that I could hopefully, I don't know how, how clear I was, but trying to explain the thing, you know, in one case you have these, in one case you would have the reward driving these, Placer representation. Some people are now thinking about in those terms. You know, you make placer map through reinforcement learning, but 
the original idea was now this, you don't need reward to set this up and then you use this framework to add information of, you know, experience of. I mean, another example that I kind of like to analogy that I like to use in questions like this is that, you know, there's no set, you know, if to, going back to the fundamental principle, a neural code is a system for mapping states of the world onto states of the brain, right? Well, there are infinitely many different ways to map states of the world onto states of the brain. There's no one answer to how do you encode states of the world and states of the brain. You can do it in so many different ways. And so then, you know, that kind of begs the question, okay, well, what makes one code better than another code? You know, if I've got a choice between making, using, building this code versus this code, you know, why would I choose one or the other? What makes one better than another? And there's no right answer to that question either, because the answer to the question, what is a good code, depends on what you're gonna be using the code for. And, 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 and an example I like to give for that is like, you know, if, you're, if, if I ask you to multiply 1,627,000 times 723 in your head, you're not gonna be able to do that and very easily. Um, but if you punch those numbers into a calculator or onto your computer, it'll come out in less than a millisecond because the way the computers encode information about numbers makes it very easy to solve those kinds of problems. And the way our brains encode information about numbers does not make it very easy to solve those kinds of problems, but those are not the kinds of problems we were asked to solve on the Savannah, right? So we encode different, we encode information. That, and so I think that when something important happens, like a shock on a track, like what we were talking about earlier, the answer to the question which code is better than the other changes because now my behavioral demands have changed. And so I have to change my code because, because what, what, which code is a good code? The things that I want to encode invariantly versus non-invariantly, the things that I want to pattern separate versus pattern complete are now different because of that experience. And I have to rebuild my code and make it better because the answer to what is a good code is no longer the same because of that motivational experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. But the way, the, the, sorry, go ahead, Francesco. I don't know, I was just nodding, yeah. But the way you're looking at these things in terms of these long time scales that, that look at how animals extinguish and then potentially reinstate, and, and this recent collaboration of yours with um, the, the oh, Adi Adhikari, yeah. Yeah, Adhikari Lab. Yeah, um, I give most of the credit, they really did most of that work on their own. We helped them with the mean scope and some data analysis advice, but uh, Peter Schuett, the lead author of that, and Avi, and, and uh, um, um, yeah, they, they really uh, did a great job on that. But go ahead. But in that, in that instance, you have not just like a kind of a reshuffling or a, the remapping is sort of one idea, but there's actually this like amplification of the resolution of that space uh, long after the, you know, the, this, the aversive episode has, has vanished. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it leads to some interesting questions about how much generalization can happen across contexts, right? So mm -hmm. will that spatial area be amplified? Because we constantly think now of, Place cells is remapping in the face of everything, you know, instantaneously almost. Mm -hmm. Yet, how stable are these fear-induced maps? And 
you know, what are the things that can potentially, you know, where, do, where does generalization come from versus context specificity? Because everyone talks about the context specificity with it. Yeah, things. yeah. So, and, and I think I, I, it's, there's different words for these things. So like when you say context specificity versus generalization, it's kind of, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a little bit analogous to saying pattern separation being similar to context specificity, pattern completion being similar to generalization or invariant coding being similar to generalization. Um, you know, these, these different terms for the same principle, which is lumping versus splitting, you know, that kind of you know, thing. And, um, you know, I guess I would go back to what I was just saying to Francesco, you know, when should you lump and when should you split? When should you pattern separate? When should you pattern complete? There's no right answer. It, 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 it's really about what the, what the task demands or what the decision pressures you face at any given time are. And so when we look at the hippocampus and see remapping, as you say, in response to everything or happening all the time and this dynamic fluidity going on at all, all the time in the hippocampus, um, it's easy to think that the hippocampus is a, is, a, is a splitter, you know, that it's more, more of a splitter than a lumper, you know, that it's just so, so unstable, you know, and, our ability to study the long-term dynamics of representations using techniques like calcium imaging, you know, uh, that ZIV paper from the Schnitzer lab from 2013, that sort of first in vivo calcium imaging paper, you know, uh, you know, it addressed that question, I think, for the very reason that for the first time it became possible to look, you know, over time in ways that weren't possible for the dynamics of the hippocampal representation and when we saw what we were able to see for the first time when those papers started coming out that, oh my God, the hippocampus, the cognitive map is, is a mess. You know, it, it changes every day. It's not, it's not a stable representation at all. You know, it's easy to panic and think, oh, you know, the campus just remaps in response to everything. But I think that, you know, we need to push the needle back the other direction and, and, and recognize that probably, uh, that, uh, and I'm trying to relate this back to your question about context specificity generalization. You know, it may, what, maybe what we're seeing there is that, maybe the lesson in that is that um, generalization is a bit more of a special case than we previously thought, you know, that, that our ability to invariantly represent things, our ability to pattern complete, our ability to identify uh, stimuli under a, and generalize across various conditions um, may be more the exception than the rule. You know, the world is full of so many, the world itself is a mess, you know? It's not just the hippocampus, the world is a mess. And so why should we be surprised that the hippocampus is a mess? It's just, there's very few things that come into us through our senses that are actually stable enough to grab onto and hold onto. And maybe that's why we uh, don't see as much of it as we might've expected. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. That's a bit of a philosophical ramble. Could, could you help me understand then these experiments in which people train an animal in some situation and then uh, label the neurons that had CFOS uh, activation during that time, and then they activate those neurons again. And it's like 
wow, that those cells encoded that state of the world uh, and encode it forever. And if you ever activate them again, it's just as if that state of the world happened. Well, you're, I think so maybe you're talking about the memory tagging experiments from 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 Susun Tanagawa, like in the in the in the uh, in the dentate gyrus and so on. Yeah. Yeah, well, so there's there's something actually very interesting about that, which is that, you know, those experiments were done in the dentate gyrus. Uh, and now maybe there's been others more recently, but those original experiments were done in the dentate gyrus. <coughs> and one of the reasons they chose the dentate gyrus uh, uh, as opposed to other structures for those experiments is because it has a uniquely sparse code for space and for context, meaning that uh, it is... Uh, it is um, uh, a single dentate gyrus cell does seem to, or the uh, does seem to encode um, uh, a specific location or context in a way that a single, say, CA1 cell or other brain cell might not, because in CA1, which is the area we were looking at today in, in our experiments. Uh, you have a much more distributed code and the importance of any single neuron's activity is correspondingly diminished, if that makes sense. So yeah. maybe if we were- Dentate gyrus is not a mess. Say that again? The dentate gyrus is not a mess. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's less, maybe less of a mess. <laughs> um, but it is, there is a, so there is a difference there. I mean, there's a, there's a continuum between, you know, sparse and distributed coding. And, and, and when you really, where you really see the mess and the remapping, I think is that's, that's kind of a feature of these areas that have very distributed coding schemes and maybe less so of something like the dentate where you see much more sparse coding. That's a good point, you know, uh, to raise actually. I mean, we, we should also, say okay it's true we observe now all these drifting of the representation in the hippocampus it's being seen even better now with these miniscopes and calcium it turns out that there were hints to that in the literature for a very long time um, but there's also a remarkable stability. I mean, you can get sometimes place cells or, you know, fighting in the same spot, in the same environment for a long time after many days, and they still fire in the same spot. Grid cells, I mean, in my experience and all other studies, they, they pick a reference frame in one environment and they stay with it, you know, for weeks. And, you know, every time the phase of the grid um, will... You know, it's just hard to track the same cell for, for many, many days. You're not sure with Tetris, but for example, the orientation of the pattern stays the same mm -hmm. in the same grid module and you go on for weeks. And, you know, in one manipulation, the grid has this axis with respect to the external world in another as another one, and it stays like that for weeks, you know. And, and so there is also a remarkable, you know, degree of stability in these systems. It's not all drift. So, it's not all a mess. Let's just, let just put it that way. Let's just reassure Charlie that it's not all a mess. I know that's true. It's not. And I think, you know, it's, and again, it's kind of like what you said earlier about everything, uh, you know, if you have, have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, you know, back when 
John O'Keefe first discovered place cells and found, you know, these neurons that are very stable, it's easy to sort of focus on those cells and kind of just assume that the other ones aren't, 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 aren't place cells or whatever. But now that we have this ability to, to look at populations, you know, larger populations over longer periods of time, you know, we see that our simple interpretation of what place cells do was a little bit lacking. We overestimated their stability, but as you say, you know, let's not go too far in the other direction. You know, they are still stable. It's just, they're not as stable as we kind of assumed when they were first discovered. And that was all we could see, you know, but yes, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I think we're running out of time. I get the feeling we could riff for a while on this stuff, but thank you for joining us. And um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you, Ted Blair. Thank you, Francesco and Todd and Charlie. And we'll see you guys yeah, thank soon. Thank you for, for doing this. This is a wonderful format. It's just, it's very intellectually stimulating. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I applaud you for uh, having this forum. It's really wonderful. Thank you all. This is uh, lots of fun and we're happy that we get to do it and that people play along. Mm -hmm.